Now, when you read through genealogies, if you're like me and you come across a genealogy in the Bible, you're almost like, oh, here we, you know, great, a genealogy. It seems mundane. It seems a little boring. But, but there's more going on here than we realize sometimes. Many of the names as we read through this are going to be familiar to us. It's kind of the usual suspects that we, we, we see. I mean, Glenn mentioned like three of them. I was going to tell him, stop, you're, you're going, you're saying to me, you know, he said Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah. I'm like, but, you know, I mean, they're just, these are the names we know. Um, we can easily just kind of skip over these things like there's really no significance. But, but there's a lot of significance in these, and I hope that maybe to bring some of that out this morning. I don't know if you guys, like in recent years, the, those DNA kits, those home ancestry kits and those types of things have become really popular. I know there's, con there's controversy in them, so I'm not saying do one. But it's, it's kind of interesting to find out who, where you came from and who your ancestors are and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm Basque. That's, you know, my, so my mother's maiden name is Olachea. That's the Basque name. The Maxwell name is Scottish. So I knew those things, but my sister did one of these. And I found out, you know, all kinds of interesting information. <laughs> you know, I kind of wonder if Jesus would have done one of these kids, um, how, how excited he would have been when he looked at the results. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, hmm, what would he have discovered? Well, as we go through this list, you're going to begin to see kind of an underlying issue that exists in Jesus's family tree. And, and I want, you know, maybe you can kind of see if you, if you know what I'm talking about as we read through it. So settle in. I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. A lot of names here. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Amminadab um, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. Whew, that's the first section. Here we go. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. There we see him. Jump at Jehoshaphat. There he is. Right. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, or Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Yes, that Ahaz, one of the bad kings. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Yes, that Manasseh, one of the really bad kings. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. Yay for Josiah. A good king in the list. Yay. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the second section. I'm going to get a drink of water real quick before we move on. Verse 12 says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. If you guys are looking for, you know, future names for kids or grandkids, um, you got some good, you know, Shealtiel is one of them you might think of. And then, of course, Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, which never gets boring to say, right? <laughs> and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There it is. Okay, so that is Jesus's family tree. Did you notice the underlying issue that I was referring to? This is not a great list. 
It's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, you, and you thought your family tree was bad? This is a pretty bad family tree. Not in terms of accuracy, but in terms of occupancy, all right? This is a, it's a correct list, but it's full of incorrect people. And in fact, I would argue that if the Bible was written by men, as some people like to say, they would have cleaned this list up to make it look way more respectable than it does. I mean, you just would. And Matthew doesn't even try to do this. And I love that. The Bible has nothing to hide. God has nothing to hide. He puts everything right out in the open, even the scandalous stuff. If you were at all concerned with keeping up appearance, appearances, you would bury most of the names on this list. Like Rahab the prostitute? Like, I have, I have no recollection of her. I, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny her existence. You would not put her name in this list. But there it is, right out in the open for everybody to see. And, and it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is not a self-esteem building chapter by any means, but it just tells you how God picks his team. And it says, you know what? You know who I went after? I mean, when we pick our teams, you know, if you go back to the school playground, you know, you, you pick the, the strongest, the fastest, the most popular. Those are the people we pick. God says, no, I pick the foolish, the weak, and the low and despised. You know, congratulations if you're on his team. It's like, that's, that, that's who he picks. And the reason that he does this, and, and the reason that we see a list like this, it highlights how amazing God is, not how amazing man is. It tells the story about a God who keeps his promises and fulfills his plan of redemption in a way that we would never have imagined or concocted on our own. You know, no matter how hard we try, we would never be able to do this. For example, the genealogy begins and ends with a supernatural birth. If you think about Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was far too old to become pregnant. You know, her, it basically says her womb was dead. She was so old. And yet, she had a child. Mary was far too virginity, I guess I'll say. I don't know if that's a word, but I don't know how, where, what else to say to become pregnant. And yet, none of that could stop our God. So you see all these amazing things in here. Now, I should point out that this list is not an exhaustive genealogy, it, it, which makes the point that I'm bringing out even more incredible. Matthew handpicked the names here. It doesn't include everybody. It's just the ones that he selected. Um, it's made up of, as I kind of pointed out as I was reading it, three distinct periods, but it only includes certain names from each period. And so in verse 17, it mentions three groupings of 14 generations. Um, so it's kind of like, imagine, kind of like forming, you know, I don't know, an N, I guess it would be, maybe, yeah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The number 14 in the Bible sometimes represents completion or perfection. Um, it can also represent the idea of deliverance or rescue. I don't know, you know, you can search this stuff out and, and try to figure it out, but for whatever reason, Matthew did it this way. There are a couple other things that are probably worth pointing out about this genealogy. Um, first is that it gives us Jesus's pedigree. So the Jewish people knew that their Messiah had specific criteria that he had to meet. He would come from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. And, and this is why Matthew chooses to start out by naming David and Abraham right at the beginning of the list. Um, he is called the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so this, this means that Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises that God made to Abraham and the promises that God made to David. Secondly, this genealogy is different from Luke's list. If you've ever noticed, if you read the, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogies are not the same. Uh, they, they cut, they're the same for a while, although Luke starts with Adam, um, and then they, they vary off. Is that because the Jewish people were just lousy at keeping records? <laughs> right? No. 
They were really good at it, in fact. I mean, kind of psycho about it. They, they would, um, you know, their scribes and so forth were really good at this type of thing. They were meticulous when it came to genealogies and transcribing Jewish history. So there's a couple of good theories about this, and, and you can, it's fun to study out. I would encourage you to do so. Both theories arrive at the same conclusion, the, the two that I think are the best. Um, they both say that one genealogy records Jesus' legal right to the throne and one his biological right to the throne. And so that's kind of the idea. Uh, one is the idea that, that this records Joseph's uh, genealogy and Luke records Mary's. Some people think that's it, maybe. There's also this idea, there's a point where these two brothers, the wife died of one and the other brother um, basically became the childbearer. So the, the legal line went this way and the biological line went this way and Luke records that. It may be that, but the bottom line is this. No matter how you slice it, guess who has the right to sit on the throne? Jesus, Jesus does, and that's the point of these genealogies, and that just makes me, I don't know, I get goosebumps, man. It's, it's so cool to think about where these lead and, and why they lead there, and that's why these genealogies are important. So, there's other reasons that, that this is so important, and I'm going to give you just kind of a few of them. The first one is that we see that God's plan of redemption runs perfectly on his timeline and, and it will accomplish his plan. Um, the very first mention of the good news of a savior, or, or sometimes it's called the proto-evangelium, if you want the, the good theological word, it's given right after the fall of man in Genesis 3.15. So this idea of the plan of redemption started right after the fall. It tells us that the offspring or the seed of the woman would be struck by the serpent, referring to the crucifixion, but that the one born of the woman would crush the head of that serpent, referring to the resurrection. So right from the beginning, and even before the foundation of the world, we're told, God's plan of salvation was in place, but it took a really, really long time to unfold. Some might even say that God seems kind of slow in keeping his promise. Right? Tracking with me there? It's easy for us to get disillusioned at times because we don't see God's plan unfolding because it's either just taken too long or, you know, we're just not seeing enough, enough, enough stuff happening. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. In fact, I love what Galatians 4.4 4 says. It says, but in the fullness of time, so according to God's timetable, in the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And we can trust in the fullness of time Jesus will return again, but it will happen according to God's timetable and not our timetable. Look at how perfect the first coming turned out. Perfect, right? Will you trust him with the second one? We should. The Lord is always doing more than we are able to see. And he's always using people that don't make sense. I like this too. I mean, look at the links in this chain that lead us to Jesus. We, it's, not, it's not great. These people had no idea of the hugeness of what God was doing through them and how significant their lives would be, but their lives would end up, every person on this list, in, in a small way, their lives would end up glorifying Jesus the King, even the ones that didn't want to. Think about that for a minute. Isn't that cool? That some, you know, a wingnut like Manasseh, his name's in the list. He ended up glory. I mean, it's like the rocks will cry out. I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. God will be glorified. And it's kind of cool to think that these people played a part in Jesus coming to us, and now we get to play a part in Jesus coming to others. Isn't that neat to think about? So this story, you know, it, it got written here, but it, it's, it's continuing on, and we're a part of that. We get to be the links in the chain that connect people to Christ through the gospel. And he can use 
anyone to do this, right? A lot of the people that are on this list are not people that we would expect to be used by God or to be on the list, but there they are. There's you know, a bunch of these names I don't even know. If you were to go through, and if I'm being honest, unless I really searched it, I don't know who these people are. A lot of them I've never heard of. God can use you, and he will use you. And most of us don't think we have that much to offer, but just like the, you know, the boy that showed up to a, to a hillside one day with a lunch, <laughs> you know what, <laughs> on a day when 5,000 people were fed, it teaches us it's not what we can do, it's what Jesus can do with us. And so God's plan of redemption is on track, and, it's, and it's, it was on track, it's still on track. And so we can take heart in that, and we get to be a part of it. That's an amazing thing to think about. We get to be another one of those links in the chain that will bring people to Christ. So that's kind of the first one. The second one is this. Jesus is willing to be associated with embarrassing people, namely sinners. You know, I, I, again, I imagine Jesus getting, you know, he, he does one of those mail-in, you know, ancestry kits, and it shows up at his house, and he, he opens it up, and he looks at the results, and he's like, I'm going to take this out in the backyard and burn it before anybody sees it. Like, I'm going to get rid of the evidence as fast as I can. You know, as I, as I pointed out, this is a pretty corrupt bloodline and a pretty embarrassing group to associate with. But the truth is that every one of us would bring shame and embarrassment to this list if our names were on it. I actually, I mean, you'll find this hard to believe, but I just wept the other day at my computer as I was doing this, just imagining if I was reading this and I saw my name on that list. I, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. I'm so sinful and so unworthy to be in his lineage. It wouldn't make any sense. And yet, this, this list shows us something very important. It shows us that Jesus came through a messed up group of people for a messed up group of people, right? And I'm really happy that, that my name, it's not on that list, but it's on the list that shows where his family tree went from there, right? Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian, you're part of his family tree now. You were adopted as a son or daughter on purpose, right? He wanted you in his, in his family tree. Talk about royal ancestry, too. I think about that. People always say, oh, you know what? I, I think uh, David, uh, you guys are related to Jesse James, I think I heard one time. That's what your dad said. I mean, if you can trust what he says. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. You know, and I, I'm, I, I was thinking, like, I have my, uh, my great uncle founded Prairie Bible Institute in Canada. It's like, that's pretty cool. There's, there's things like that, that you find out. that. But, but you know what? You have royal ancestry. You know, it's like, oh, what, where does your family tree go? Well, Jesus adopted me. So what do you got? You know, that's pretty good, right? So I'm glad that this list wasn't whitewashed and, and, and cleaned up, you know, to make it presentable. Because some of the names in this list give hope to sinners because we can all relate to somebody on this list, can't we? Um, even the people we think of as, as, as heroes you know, I don't know if you read your Bible that way. I used to read it that way. Like, these are all, these are all heroes. And, and then you really start to look at their lives and you go, hmm, um, there's some gnarly stuff going on in these guys' lives. So, you know, Abraham, he's the father of the faith, Father Abraham. He wasn't always a great husband, right? He put his wife into some really, really bad situations to protect his own skin. Uh, David was guilty at best of adultery and at worst of forcing himself on a woman, Bathsheba, and then getting her pregnant, and then murdering her husband to cover it up. Right? Judah, <laughs> look at Judah. He was—he hired a prostitute when he was on his, you know, on a business trip. Turned out to be his daughter-in-law, disguised. Um, I mean, this is—we're only in verse two right now, by the way. I mean, that's this is this list. Just it, it gets—it's—it's it's bad. Hopefully, nobody can relate to you know Rehoboam and. 
Ahaz and Manasseh, those, those are all kings on the naughty list. Um, but I love, you know, look at this list. It includes Jews and Gentiles. It includes men and women. Well-known, unknown. Savory, unsavory. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of a cross-section of the humanity that Jesus came to save. And, and somewhere you're in there and I'm in there. And so this is a precious list to me because it tells me that if Jesus is not too embarrassed to associate himself with them, then he's not too embarrassed to associate himself with me. And that blows my mind, but it's true. So no matter who's on this list, we all have one thing, they all have one thing in common. They are all sinners in need of a savior. And the good news is that these are the kinds of people that Jesus came to redeem. And that's why we can celebrate, you know, if you ever thought about that, a chapter like Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the Hall of Faith, and we celebrate some of the people whose names are on this list. And you think, how can we celebrate these guys? No, I mean, Rahab's on there, right? Rahab, there she is again on that list. But, but we're seeing these people through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of, of Jesus' transforming them, which means that he's transformed faithless people into faithful people. That's what the gospel does. That's what belief does. So it's not about what these people didn't do or did do or, or any of that. That's not what defines them anymore. Jesus does. And that's true for you and I as well if we are in Christ. So Jesus is not embarrassed to be associated with me because he took my sin and my shame and he buried it with him. And then he gave me his righteousness, righteousness and he made me a new creation. As he came up out of the ground to new life, I, I trust in that. That's my identity now. Me buried, my sin buried, my shame buried new creation in Christ. And so it's kind of a cool thing to think about in regards to this list. His work of bringing righteousness to sinners, it washed backwards over that list and it washes forward over us. So that, that's another cool thing about this genealogy. And then, then another one is just this. When we, when we look at the example of Jesus based on what we read in this, we see the, the, the humble, um, you know, the fact that he would condescend to us it's our pattern to follow. And so knowing that Jesus was eternally God, part of the Trinity, and, and he left willingly, left his glorious estate to become human so that he could go to the cross, we, we can learn from a list like this that if Jesus was willing to associate with sinners, shouldn't we? If Jesus was willing to humble himself and take a lower station than he, than he deserved, shouldn't we? I mean, think about this. I mean, Jesus washed feet. I hate feet. I mean, I just said they're gross. And Jesus willingly washed the feet of his disciples. That's our example to follow. Is there anything that's beneath us as Christians? No. I saw I was at the 3R location a couple weeks ago when it snowed one morning, and I was out there shoveling the snow before while people were getting there, and somebody pulled in and said, why are you doing this? Don't you have people to do this? And I remember thinking, if this is beneath me to shovel some snow, I'm not being like Jesus at all. It's like there's nothing. A pastor should be the biggest servant of all as far as I'm concerned. There's a garbage to be emptied. I was picking up garbage that day too because it's scattered all over the lot. It's like, am I going to follow the leader or not? If Jesus was willing to set him aside for the sake of others, shouldn't we? Right? So we need to follow our leader. We should be the most loving, most kind, most humble, most selfless people that exist. To the point where Jesus said that all people will know that you're my followers. They'll, they'll know that you're with me if you love each other and the people around us. When they see that, it's almost like they're going to walk up and kind of cock their head sideways and go, this is different. And, and then they're going to 
going to connect the dots back to Jesus. That's the point. You can almost hear him saying that. It's like, oh, Jesus is real. There's no other explanation for this. How can a group of people from all these different backgrounds, all these different, you know, how can they love each other the way that they do and then love people in the community the way they do? Jesus is the only answer for that. Okay, so, so far, Matthew has shown us the historical path that led us to Jesus. Now he's going to show us the means that God used to get Jesus to us. And that starts in verse 18, where we read, Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that means sexually, uh, and, and husband and wife as far as marriage goes, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So not yet in the marriage ceremony, and she's pregnant, and they have not been together yet. So that's the issue. Now, it was common to have prearranged marriages at this time, so the fathers would, would determine that these kids are going to marry each other someday. That's kind of what we would think of as, as more of an engagement period. But there was also this betrothal thing, which is way different than an engagement period. If you, once you became betrothed, that usually lasted a year. That's where this became ratified. And you were actually like husband and wife, even though you didn't sleep together or live together, but it was just as though you were married. And so the only way to get out of this betrothal thing was to actually get a divorce. Um, so very different than our engagement period, where if you change your mind, you can just call the whole thing off. That's, that wasn't the way it worked. Once you were betrothed, you had to get a divorce to break it off. So that's kind of the situation they were in. They were already betrothed, and now she's pregnant. Try to imagine what this would have been like for them. It really is. I mean, think about Mary was only a teenager at the time, maybe 15. That's, you know, I mean, maybe younger. That wasn't unusual in their culture at all. But can you imagine how strange and scary this would have been? But I love to see how, how gracious God was and how merciful he was to them to, to, to explain to them what was going on. Because this would have been unbelievably scary. And Luke records this for us, actually, in chapter 1. I'm going to read part of this starting in 26, or, uh, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's important. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> Lord, what do you mean the Lord is with me? Oh, you'll find out, Mary. Hang, hang tight. <laughs> uh, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, so this is talking about the sinlessness of Jesus, which we'll get to a little bit in a minute. But this means that God would supernaturally cause Mary to be pregnant, which is nothing to God who can create everything out of nothing. I mean, just think back to the creation account. Right? And it's kind of similar. You have this idea of the, the Holy Spirit is kind of hovering over this, this, this area that's formless and void, nothing going on there. And then, you know, God speaks and life happens. So th it's, it's like this isn't really hard for God at all. He can do this. He can speak things into existence, and that's, that's what happens. So why is the virgin birth important? 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I remember, you guys remember the emergent church movement that was kind of popular for a while? And there's still this, this kind of this postmodern thinking of let's question everything. That was kind of how they, they were. And, and it's okay to question things, but they, they got ridiculous about it. And one of the questions I remember coming out of that time was, they, they, you know, these guys would sit around, you know, acting all, you know, uh, intellectual and say, well, is this important? Is that important? And they would say, is the virgin birth really important? I remember hearing these guys, you know, can we just, can't we just take that brick out of the wall? Is that an important brick? Can we take that brick out of the wall? Does the whole wall come down? It's a good question. Let's look at how important this is. First thing, it, the, the virgin birth, it, it means that Jesus literally is the son of God. That's important. Second, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy that the prophet Isaiah predicted 700 years before it happened. So it, they refer to that in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It also goes back to what I talked about before, the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first good news in Genesis. So this was predicted, so that it's important. Um, it's important because it gives us two, the two natures of Jesus, Okay? He's fully God, like his father, and he's fully human, like his mother. That This is, again, the theological term for this is the hypostatic union of Christ. It means that uh, he was really God, and he was really one of us. And so when he was born, he took on flesh. That means he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to live in one of these and to, 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 to be tempted and, and go through the things that we've gone through. He's, he's like us, which makes him the perfect high priest for us. This is really important. But it also um, means that he was fully God, which means that he was worthy to become our sin bearer. So a mere man's sacrifice could not pay for the sins of the world, but God going to the cross, that, that does. And so th that's a really important part of the virgin birth. But, but maybe most importantly, the reason the virgin birth matters so much is because without it, Jesus would not be without sin. And Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and that death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So the sin nature has been passed down to us from Adam. Adam did not represent Jesus as his federal head. God the Father did, and that's the difference. So this means that Jesus was born without the original sin that, that the rest of us are born with because that's spiritually passed down to us from Adam. And the, the, the weird thing, you know, it's, it's like, well, how does that work? Well, the opposite thing happens to us when we become Christians. So, you know, Adam no longer is our federal head. Now Jesus is, and that's how we can be declared righteous. So I don't know how this exactly works, but in God's economy, it works, and that's good enough for me. There's, there's all kinds of goofy theories about and some of it's actually fascinating. Like there's this thing in, in and I, again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but when a woman is pregnant, somehow her blood stays separate from the baby's blood. I don't know how that works. And I don't even know if there's like a theological thing to camp on here, but, but you can read about it. And it's like, is that significant? Is that why Mary was able to, you know, if Joseph wasn't involved, it was just Mary. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. God worked it out and I trust it. That's the bottom line. But um, the sin nature is inherited from Adam. The redeemed nature is inherited from Christ. That's the simple way to put it. So the bottom line is, is this an important brick in the wall? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know what, without that brick, you know what we lose? Jesus, yeah, we lose salvation. We lose everything. The wall comes down. So it's a pretty stinking important brick. Stop messing with it, right? Okay, so we saw how God graciously made sure that Mary was, was in the loop and comforted with what was going on when she received the news that she would become pregnant and conceive a son. But what about poor Joseph? I just think about this guy. Um, this would have been really hard to believe 
So all of a sudden she's pregnant and he goes to her and goes, what's going on? And she, she says, um, yeah, God, God intervened in this way and caused me to become pregnant. And you can just pick, you expect me to believe that you were not unfaithful to me and that, that you know, God caused you to be pregnant? Yeah, because that happens all the time. I mean, this would have been a tough pill to swallow for Joseph, would it not? I mean, I've heard some, you know, some funny excuses before, but that just sounds unbelievable. But here we have God coming to Joseph and, and, and working with him as well, again, in his mercy. So verse 19 in Matthew chapter 1 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. I like this because it's telling us Joseph wanted to follow the law of God, but he also wanted to be kind and loving to his bride. So it, because he wanted to um, do this, he resolved not, or he resolved to divorce her quietly. He wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't bring a lot of shame to her. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, important again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as hard as this would have been for Joseph and Mary, I think all of that would have gone away when they realized the privilege of what God was doing with this couple and what, what, what he was using them for. And so in verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not, or they, they didn't come together physically, sexually. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Mary got to bring the Savior into the world, and Joseph obeyed God and, and humbly got to become his earthly dad. Pretty amazing. And his legal dad, which is important because it means that Jesus, the son of David, has the right to sit on the throne as king. And all of this, all of this whole chapter for undeserving sinners. And this is the part that just floors me when I think about it. All of these links in the chain, all of this plan of redemption, all of that to come to us an unworthy group of people who don't deserve what he came to do, don't deserve him. And yet he says, you know what? I've come to die for sinners. I've come to be, to receive you as children, to adopt you as sons, as daughters. And, and this is all done through what we're going to, what we're going to do right now is through, through the communion that we remember Christ for us, his body for us, his blood for us. I love the titles that are presented in, in this chapter because they preach the gospel in and of themselves. So Jesus is called the Christ or the Messiah which means the anointed one or the chosen one of God. He's called Emmanuel, which is God with us. So he came to us because we couldn't get to him. And he's called Jesus, the Lord saves. So the chosen one of God came to us to save us. And he did it. He did it through his work on the cross. And so this table is set for believers. If you're a, if you're a Christian, um, this is for you. This is Christ for you. It's a reminder that he willingly came, went through all of this, this messed up family tree, because you mattered to him. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to receive the Lord's communion. Father, thank you so much that uh, you've done an amazing thing by bringing Jesus into the world for sinners. We thank you that your plan of redemption um, started before the foundation of the world, and it will continue without interruption until the day Jesus returns. Thank you that we get to be a part of that. Thank you that you've included us in salvation. We understand that it really costs us nothing, and it costs Jesus everything. And we remember that now as we, as we consider his broken body and his blood shed.
for us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could um, be changed and transformed into a new creation and so that we can have life eternal with you. So thank you, Father. Help us to worship you now as we, as we do this in Jesus' name.